Good evening. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin our study in verses 14 through 16 this evening. What is church? And what do we mean when we use the word church? With so much religious confusion today, I think it is vital that you and I understand the words that we use and that we use words, Bible words, in Bible ways. And uh, it's important because we don't want to become the source of confusion oftentimes. And as we consider the use of this word, church, I think there really has been a lot of confused talk. At least I've heard and probably participated in a lot of confused talk in my lifetime about what church is. But I think that understanding what church is is more important than simply fixing how we talk. Because words really do mean something. Words affect the way we see ourselves. Words affect the way we think. Words affect the way we are perceived. Words affect how the way people think of us. Words affect how I live every day. Words mean something. And so consequently, as we talk tonight about what church is, we may not need to just adjust the way we talk about church, but the way we think about church and the way we live with respect to what church means and the way church changes our lives. Tonight, we're most specifically going to focus on what does this word church mean? And we're hopefully going to have other studies on the matter over the next month. But I want to understand what this church mean, this word church means and how it changes an appropriate understanding of this word changes the way we speak and how we view and live out our purpose as God's people. But let's begin tonight by noticing 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verses 14 through 16. Paul says there to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, I most specifically like the New King James translation of this verse, which actually says instead of in verse 15, household of God, house of God. We're not going to get into the reasons of why that's the case tonight. But just understand when I talk about this passage tonight, I'm going to take that translation house of God. And we can talk about that more later if you desire. So as we look at this passage, what does it mean to say that the house of God is the living church of God. And what does it mean to say that the church of God is the pillar and buttress of the truth? Tonight, our purpose is to understand the word church and understand how we should use it. But we're going to use this passage tonight 
to demonstrate the importance of understanding this word church and how it in fact affects our interpretation and our application of passages like these. So our purpose tonight is not just to simply understand this passage, but to understand the importance of using the word church appropriately so that we can apply and understand passages like this one right here that use the word church. So let's keep questions about this passage's meaning at bay for the moment. And let's just understand what this word church means first, and then we'll dissect this passage. So as we talk about this word church, I think it'd be kind of helpful for us to first consider English uses of the word church. Because what I want for us to understand is that when we use the word church, there's really quite a bit of religious confusion. And we'll see that as we consider these definitions. Uh, Most of these definitions I found uh, from Webster's. Uh, The first definition I found, and probably the most common definition uh, or usage of the word church today, is a building that is used for religious services. Services. Uh, Someone might say when they look at a building, uh, look at that beautiful church. Second definition, religious services. Someone might say, uh, with respect to worship, they might say, did you go to church this morning? Third, uh, not one that I've heard as much in my lifetime, but uh, a third definition is the clerical profession. So someone might say, I consider church as a possible career. And fourth definition, and it's often capitalized in this, uh, in this, with this definition, refers to any division or body professing the same creed or a Christian denomination. Uh, someone might say, I am a member of the Methodist Church, in reference to a denomination. So our question tonight is really quite simple. When the writers of the New Testament wrote the word we translate as church in the Greek language, were they trying to convey any of these concepts that you see here on the screen? I hope to show you tonight how these definitions really don't represent the ideas conveyed by the original Bible writers at all. Because our word of importance tonight is the word ecclesia. Every single time you read the word church in the Bible, that is the Greek word being translated, the Greek word ecclesia being translated as church. And the word ecclesia actually has a very simple definition an assembly or a gathering. Essentially, the word ecclesia simply refers to a group of people. It is a collective noun, a non-descriptive collective noun that simply refers to a group of people. And what's interesting about this word ecclesia is that it is used not just in the Bible to refer to a group of Christians, though most of the time it is. It's actually used in the Bible at other times to refer to different types of groups. And I want to demonstrate that to you just so we understand that the word is not some type of religious word meant to be used as a uh, official title, but it is simply talking about people. It's talking about you and me. Uh, And what's interesting is we can actually see this word used in the Old Testament. You might say for a moment, whoa, 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 whoa. The word ecclesia shouldn't show up in the Old Testament because there was no church in the Old Testament. 
Well, when the Hebrew writers wrote the Old Testament, they used Hebrew. But later on, people went back and translated the Old Testament into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. And since the word ecclesia simply refers to a group of people, they use that word up to 40 to 50 times throughout the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to refer to groups of people. I'm just going to give you one usage of that word uh, tonight. And even in the Septuagint, we're going to see it just refers to a group of people. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10 says, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of assembly. That word there in the Septuagint Bible, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, is ecclesia. It's translated as assembly here because it simply refers to a group of people. I thought about going through other Old Testament passages, but I think you get the idea that this is used in the Old Testament. I went ahead and listed up a few other passages on the screen for you if you desire to write them down and see other places where this is used. Deuteronomy 4.10 and other places throughout uh, Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. Now, what's really interesting is when we come to the New Testament... This word ecclesia is used most all of the time to refer to a group of Christians in some way of an, or another. But it's actually used in, uh, I could count three other times, to not refer to Christians in the New Testament. I want to consider two of those for you to, with you tonight. Uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19. I want you to see this in uh, your own Bible. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, and first I want for us to look at verse 32. What's neat is this word ecclesia is used twice in this passage here in Acts 19, and it's used in two different ways to refer to two different groups of people or two different assemblies or gatherings. Uh, So what's happening here in Acts 19 is Paul has gotten a riot going because he's converting people to Christ and the people in that city who made the physical idols don't like it because they're ruining their business. So uh, it's like if Christianity was spreading so much today that we shut down all the bars or something like that. Uh, That's what's happening. There's a riot going on in that city. And notice how it describes the riot, how the riot is described in verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's interesting to note that the word ecclesia there actually refers to a mob of people, a mob of people who didn't even know what they were doing. They were just really angry and they were yelling very loudly. Go on, though, to verse 39 of Acts 19. It says, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Here again, our word that is normally translated church is uh, it refers to a city council. So in the same passage, ecclesia refers to a mob of people and a city council. So I hope I, I do that so that we understand that when we read the word ecclesia, it's always just referring to a group or assembly of people. And the context always determines what that grouping or what type of group of people is being referred to. 
Now, since the Bible is about God and about God's people, the most common usage of the word ecclesia in the New Testament is to refer in one way or another to Christians. And they don't even have to say in the New Testament, this is a church of Christians, because that's the context of these people's lives. That's the context when they're writing to one another. I want to show you a couple of those instances. Uh, Notice Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul here speaks of how he persecuted Christians. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So Paul here says that he persecuted the church of God. Did Paul persecute a building? Did Paul persecute an organization or an institution or the clergy of some denomination? No, Paul killed and persecuted people. Paul persecuted people. Later on, uh, in Ephesians, the word is used, and it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 22 through 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Here again, the word ecclesia refers to people, and it says here that the church is Christ's body. Now, is Christ's body a building? Or an organization? No, it's just people. Paul is just talking about people. And when we translate the word church, the word is just ecclesia. It's a nondescriptive collective noun that simply refers to a group of people. It's not trying to convey. The point of all this is to say that it's not trying to convey the common ideas that we think of oftentimes when we think of church. We've already shown by the definitions on the screen. And by the way, those were the only definitions in Webster's Dictionary. There's nothing about just a group of people. That's what people think about when they think about church. People think of a building or religious services or clergy or a career. People don't think about just a group of people, just a group of Christians. And isn't that sad then? Because when we interpret the Bible, that makes the Bible really impersonal when we talk about church, doesn't Doesn't it? It makes the word church very impersonal because then it just refers to an institution or something that does not even live. Now, obviously, uh, the answer to all this is to not just cross out the words church in our Bibles. Uh, That's not going to be really helpful to us. Instead, I think what would be more helpful is for us to change the way we think of and use the word church and adapt our thinking and our language to the way the Bible meant to use the word church, the way Paul meant to use the word ecclesia. And so let's think about this in our brains for a moment. If church simply refers to, in the Bible's context when it's referring to Christians, if it just refers to assembly or gathering of Christians, that means that we don't do church here in this building. No, the church or the assembly or God's group of people meets in this building. And this building is not the church. There's nothing special about this building or any building where Christians happen to meet. It's just where we happen to meet. 
And finally, as Brent reminded us, I think so applicably about a year ago now, we do not go to church. We are the church. Here, uh, we're the local church. We'll talk about more usages of the word church and how we, that varies throughout the Bible and in our own language later on at a, at a later date. But the simple idea here is that the church is you and me. The church is individual people gathered together. And we need to talk about the church in that way. We aren't going to be perfect in our usage of this word, but we really need to try to change the way we think of and the way we use this word. Let's avoid saying things like, I'm going to church. We're going to make mistakes and that's okay. But it's important that we change the way we use that. Instead of saying, I'm going to church, let's say, I'm going to worship with the church. Or instead of asking, what church do you go to? Let's say, what church do you work and worship with? Some suggestions of how we could correct our language in that. And that might seem nitpicky, but remember the way we talked about this in the very beginning. Is this important just because uh, it matters in the way we mean our words? Is it just important just to get our words right? Is, Is that all that is important here? No, the way we use our words is important because it changes the way we think. It changes the way I think about myself. It means then that I don't just attend a church. I need to live like the church. I need to live like God's group of saved people. And there are lots of other applications of that that we'll talk about in just a moment. It changes the way, the way we use our words changes the way other people view us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. Because really, if the word, and I think most important, if the word church really just refers to a group of people, then it changes how we interpret scripture. And it makes the Bible's discussions about church, about God's group of people, very personal for us. If we're not just talking about a building or if we're not just talking about an institution or a company or organization, it makes it personal because when you and I read the Bible and when we read the word church, we need to think differently. We need to think this is talking about me. This is talking about you. This is talking about us as God's people. And so I want for us tonight with the remainder of our time to practice this, to practice this, how we interpret scripture with the appropriate understanding of the word church as simply Christians gathered together. And let's practice it with our uh, passage that we looked at in the very beginning, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So go ahead and turn back over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16. And I want to practice Reading and viewing this word church in the proper way. See how much this shapes our understanding of this passage to see that this passage is talking about God's people, not about some type of uh, formal institution or impersonal group. Read with me. First Timothy chapter three, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay 
You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So if you know much about 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, then you know that Paul has given a lot of instructions to Timothy in this passage. He's talked about in chapter 2 the need for men to pray with hands that have not been involved in violence, not been involved in quarreling or anger, but that they might lift holy hands when they pray. He's talked about the need for women to dress modestly and to dress themselves with holiness and to learn with a quiet and submissive spirit. He's talked about the need for elders and servants in the congregation to pursue godly character and that they must have a certain character before and as they are serving as elders and servants. He's talked about a lot of things like this. Now Paul tells Timothy that he's writing all of those things so that Timothy, and I'm sure the others there, might know how a person should behave in the house of God. Remember, we're taking that translation, the NKJV, the New King James Version, house of God, the God's dwelling place. And so I want to ask then, thinking about these behaviors that Paul tells them to adopt, what is God's house? Where does God dwell? Well, it says here in verse 15, the church of the living God. But what does that even mean? Let's be careful. Does it refer to a building? Is God's house a building? Is God's house an organization? No, God's house, God's dwelling place is in his church or his assembly, his group. God's dwelling place is in his people. I believe this is a pretty relevant message for us to remember today. Because God's presence is seen through his people, not through institutions, not through a building named after him. I believe this is very important because if God's dwelling place, God's house were an institution or a building, then it's something that people would have to build or something that people would have to attend in order to see. God's house would be something that someone could actually leave. God's presence is a place that someone could leave. It's a place where you say, well, God's house is over there. But that's not the case. Paul says here that God's going place is in his group of saved people. We, if we are Christians, gather together as God's people. We are God's house. And I think that's a pretty motivating thought to consider because then it's always important how we behave as Paul talks about here in verse 15. Because then Paul's words in chapters 2 to 3 about not praying with hands that have been involved in quarreling and anger and women dressing modestly and learning with quietness and elders pursuing and 
servants pursuing the right character, that becomes applicable every moment of the day because it's who I am. I am the church. We are the church. Do we want men to pray just sometimes with with hands that have been free of quarreling and free of anger? Do we want women to just sometimes dress modestly? No. We want men to always pray with holy hands. Women to always dress as if their bodies were a holy place. We want elders and servants to always pursue this character. When I wake up, I must always remember that since I am part of God's saved people, I am God's dwelling place. We are God's dwelling place. And we need to represent that in how we speak, how we pray, how we dress, how we treat others, how we think. We need to represent that God is dwelling in me. God is dwelling in all of us who are called by his name. I am to be a place of holiness always. Though we're given instructions as to how to do this throughout the rest of chapters 2 to 3, and we could look at each of these individually, I think, most importantly, that's described in our daily walk right here in verse 15. Notice how Paul describes in verse 15 the defining aspect of God's house, God's church. He says that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The second thing that we learn from this passage is that God's church, God's people are a pillar and buttress of the truth. I believe this teaches us the essential responsibility and the essential purpose of God's people. We are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if we understand that the word church is just referring to a group of God's people, then that makes this statement so personal and so purposeful for us. We aren't God's church because we attend a local church that believes, confesses, and teaches and upholds the truth. We are individually God's dwelling place and God's help house because as a group of people, we all confess, believe, teach, and uphold the truth. See that distinction? Say it again. We are not God's church because we attend a local church that believes, confesses, and teaches and upholds the truth. We are God's church based on the fact that we individually, everybody that comprises the church, does individually confess, believe, teach, and uphold the truth about Christ as it's confessed there in verse 16. God's church, Christians... Christians, God's church is only a pillar and buttress of the truth if each individual, if all of God's people within his group believe, confess, teach, and live the truth. And so here's the point of talking about all of this. People talk a lot about going to churches that teach the truth. That's important. It's important to work and to worship with people who teach and practice the truth. But let's not settle for that. Us here in this room, let's not settle for going to a church or working and worshiping with a church that teaches and practices the truth. Let's not settle for that. Let's be the church. 
Let's be God's group of saved people. Let's be a local group of God's saved people who are in each of our individual localities living in a way that supports the truth. Upholding the truth about Christ as seen here in verse 16 in our words and in our actions because we are not defined as God's people based on the local group or church we affiliate ourselves with. We are not defined as God's people because we associate ourselves with a local group that teaches the truth. We must understand that Christians. We are defined as God's people based on whether or not we are God's dwelling place that individually in our own lives and collectively together support the truth of the gospel declared to us here in verse 16. And so in conclusion, I know that most of us already understand the application of this. I know that most of you are already living like God-saved people and aren't just trying to attend a group. I know who I'm talking to here. So many of you are in so many ways servants, great servants in the way that you sacrifice and take care of other people. You live like God's saved people. So many of you live these truths and even speak these truths in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in around your neighbors and your family members in the surrounding community. I know that you're doing this. I know that you're already living like God's church. So many of us here. The reason then that I want for us to talk about this is because we need to make sure that we understand the foundation of why it's so important that we keep doing that. That we keep pursuing that. We, the people... Are the church. We, the people, are God's dwelling place, and it is so important that we continue to serve people like we are God's dwelling place. It is so important that we pray with hands that have not been involved in quarreling and anger because we are the church. It is so important, women, that we dress modestly and with holiness because we are always the church, not just when we gather together. It is always important to do these things. And if we forsake those purposes, if we forsake those behaviors and yet attend a local group that teaches the truth, I hope we will see that if we do abandon that, that we individually are not supporting the purpose of God's universal church and really the purpose of every local group that works for the Lord. To be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Meaning just to support the truth. To speak the truth. To live the truth. And so our question tonight, I hope, has been answered. What is church? We're going to talk more about it later. But let's just first understand this basic idea. That whenever we use the word church, we need to ensure that we are talking about and referring to God's people. Let's avoid all the impersonal language about talking about church as if it's something that we go to or sit in. People are the church. And God's people are called to be a part of something so much more than an institution, so much more than a denomination, so much more than a building. Neither an institution or neither a building has been tasked with revealing Jesus to the world and supporting the truth in the world. We are the people and we are the church given this awesome responsibility. 
And so let's all reveal Jesus to the world. Let's all be the church. Let's all live like the church. I hope this has been helpful for you in your walk as you consider how you ought to live day to day this week and how we all consider our identity as God's people. We are the supreme important people that God talks about in the New Testament whom Christ died for and gave himself for and brought himself brought us to himself. If there's been a way in your life that you've been living as if you aren't the church. I want for us to have an open open atmosphere here where we can talk to one another about that and help one another in that way of living. We want to help you in your life to become God's people, to not just become a person in the world, but to become a part of Christ's church. And so if you've drifted from that or if you've not become a part of that, understand that you can become one of God's children right now. All you have to do is reorient your way of thinking and repent of your past sins. Confess that your faith is in Jesus Christ and you can be baptized and your sins will be washed away and you can walk a new life this week as a part of God's group of saved people. If there's any way we can help you in your walk with God, come forward to the front while we stand and while we sing.